This afternoon's meditation, please turn with me to Acts, the 11th chapter, Acts chapter 11. This morning, as we looked into the scripture, the theme was the gospel is the power unto salvation. And we looked at the power to change me as an individual, the power to change others, and this afternoon, the power to change the world through the church. And so I'd like to begin our reading, Acts chapter 11, uh, with verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord." Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord." Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. I'd like to conclude here at verse 26. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's a historian writing the accounts of what happened in the course of the early church. And in verse 19, as we pick up, this is a loose thread that goes back to chapter chapter 8. And as a historian, or whatever you're writing, the uh, course of history of any circumstance, there's multiple threads that... Uh, expand from a particular point in time, and you can't follow all all of them simultaneously. And so what we have in verse uh, chapter 7, rather, is uh, when Stephen is uh, um, in front of the council, and then he is the first martyr of the early church, and then Luke follows the life of, of um, Saul and then Philip and then Peter, and then we then pick up the history in uh, chapter eleven with what we what we spoke what we read together as far as the early church. So to give the quick backdrop, if we go back to chapter number eight. Um, we read in the fourth verse, this is after Stephen was martyred, and then it introduces Saul to us, being Saul consenting to their death, in other words, supporting the, the persecution of the church. It says, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They left Jerusalem because their lives were in danger, and they scattered to all of these different places that we read in in chapter 11. What was interesting is that 
Luke records that none of the apostles left Jerusalem. It was all the unnamed believers. And we, as we pick up in chapter 11 here, uh, as these believers traveled as far as Phoenicia, and it lists us several cities, including Antioch, that they preached the Lord Jesus, but they're all nameless. None of them were of any great note in the early church. Not the apostles, not some of the, the other names that we're familiar with, that, uh, of Stephen and Philip and others. And I find it interesting that this is really how the gospel multiplied through the early church and throughout history. It's true that God did use the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 for a great sermon, and eventually the other apostles, a number of them, that uh, to accomplish great things for him. But the bulk of the multiplication happened with ordinary believers, of whom we don't even have their names. And this is God's design. He never intended to have a few gifted orators, gifted speakers, to have millions of followers on YouTube or on Twitter to carry the gospel message to the world. His design was through every believer doing it one relationship at a time. I recall uh, my father sharing with me years ago of how in um, my grandfather's time in uh, Yugoslavia at the time, is that's how the gospel spread there as well. It wasn't because they had some uh, gifted evangelists that were uh, proclaiming the word on the street corner. It was through the ordinary village person dwelling in the village that as they worshipped God and interacted with their neighbors and the people around him, there was something unique and novel about that. And they would invite them, come and see. And they would come along because they knew the individual. And it was apparent that God was working in their life. We aren't given a specific technique in how they shared the message I think we we see a pattern established in uh, chapter 6 with Stephen in particular. So we see it says, And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians, or those of the Greeks, against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. In other words, you have widows here of Greek uh, descent. You have some of the Hebrews' descent, and maybe this is the first... Um, uh, Reference to racial discrimination, where one one faction was complaining the other, is that they got more than they did, because of course widows in that day didn't have a way to sustain themselves, and so the church took it upon themselves to provide the daily ministration, the daily sustenance needed for them, uh, the daily food that they required. And somehow there was an imbalance, or at least there was a charge of imbalance. And so the apostles called the disciples to them together. And it says, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And then it gives a list of those, including Stephen. It says, Stephen, full of faith and power. And it goes on to say that 
He was not only responsible in that ministry, think of it as the uh, first mention of like a Meals on Wheels in the New Testament, providing physical sustenance to people. This is not a glamorous job. It's not something that one would necessarily aspire to, but they carried out that job faithfully. And as they carried out that job faithfully, additional responsibility was added because he was full of the Holy Ghost. And that got him into trouble because he naturally exuded, he naturally flowed from him the message. And not everyone he spoke to about the message was open to it or what was very thrilled about it. In fact, put up great opposition and got him hauled in front of the council to answer for the things that he was sharing. And eventually in chapter 7, we don't have the time to read it, but he provides the reason of the hope that is within him and became the first martyr of the church. This ordinary man did extraordinary things because he was full of the Holy Ghost, full of the Holy Spirit, and allowed God to work through him one relationship at a time. I have no doubt that those that were scattered abroad because of that persecution that then occurred that we picked up here in chapter 11, I have no doubt that they followed that same example, filled with the Holy Spirit and naturally sharing in the place where they found themselves. And God, it says, verse 21 in chapter 11, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. We see a surprising statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, as he's sharing with the disciples about John the Baptist. He says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now think about this for a minute. What Jesus is saying is, John the Baptist is the greatest of all prophets. Now, what what are the prophets that are being compared? Think about this. We have Moses, we have Noah, we have Elijah, we have Elisha, we have uh, David, we have Jeremiah, we have a host of other prophets. And what Jesus is saying is, John the Baptist is greater than all of them. Yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's hard to wrap our mind around, at least it is for me, to think about how is it possible that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Now, if we look about here in in, in the room, I'm not sure sort of what you would characterize as least in the kingdom of heaven. Is it someone who is the youngest in the kingdom of heaven? Someone who's just born spiritually? Or someone who is uh, perhaps the least mature in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, perhaps that's one way of looking at it. He's saying that he, that individual, of which all of us at some point were that person, is greater than 
John the Baptist. The only way I can sort of reconcile and understand what Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist was the last of the prophets that did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we see the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus instructed the believers, the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive, until you are endued with power from on high, that is the Holy Spirit to come upon you, because that will give you the power necessary to carry out the ministry that he had entrusted to them. And then, of course, we have Pentecost, and we see a great transformation that has taken place. And we see the power that was released and how the church grew and multiplied to the point that it had become started with one individual as Jesus, then his disciples, and multiplied to the point that essentially, in short order, within, I believe it was 200 years, had become the dominant religion in the known world. An incredible multiplication that no one could have foresaw the effectiveness of that approach. And so what Jesus is saying is that everyone who is a believer today has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and is capable of doing greater things than even John the Baptist. That doesn't leave any believer out. Because it's easy for us to sort of excuse ourselves in, in the sense that, well, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not fill in the blank as a way to demonstrate, to, to ease our conscience to indicate that we're not really responsible for that. Or we don't have the capability for it. And it's true, we don't have the capability for it. But with the Holy Spirit, He empowers us to do things that would not be possible without having that permanent indwelling. But Jesus builds on that and says something even more surprising. In John 14, we read in verse 12, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. So now Jesus is upping the ante. He's saying not only is the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than John the Baptist, but he's saying that he that believeth on me is going to do greater works than even Jesus did himself. Now, if I would have said that perhaps without reading that scripture of the words of Jesus and you were not familiar with that scripture, you, include myself, would have probably taken exception to that concept not possible to do thing greater than Jesus himself. And yet these are the words of Jesus. How is it possible that that could be correct? There are two things that I think that, that's true in two ways. We think of the miracles that Jesus did. He um, provide physical healing and and provided food in a miraculous way. He walked on the water and he did things that nobody had ever seen before 
into our minds, those are the most significant aspects of his miracle. But Jesus prioritizes that part of his ministry when he says, as, as he did some of these miracles, it says in Mark, the first chapter, he healed many that were sick and demon-possessed, and, and, and all these people were gathered together who were sick with various diseases. And then, the next morning, the disciples came and say, All men seek for thee. And Jesus said unto them, Let us go into the next town, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. Preaching the the gospel message was more important than to stay and set up a hospital there in that town and and continue to heal everyone. Of course, he did that to establish the power and the authenticity of the gospel. But that was not the main focus. And so, although a physical healing is a miracle, impressive, something to take note of, It pales in comparison to someone who is spiritually redeemed. Someone who is converted. And we've witnessed the conversion of souls. We've seen how God has worked in their life. And I will have a personal confession to say at times, though it is great and we see the angels in heaven rejoice, in some ways... Perhaps it's become too commonplace for us to truly recognize the greatness of what takes place when a soul is converted, when someone is born into the kingdom of heaven. That is the greatest miracle of all. Some time ago, I read a testimony of a young woman born in an Islamic country, very strict Islamic country, where... Uh, Being a Christian is a death sentence. And by divine providence, she was came across a Bible, read it, and became a believer in such a hostile location. Had to flee for her life to another section, another part of the country that um, where she could live in anonymity. And was there to disciple other young women. And had the opportunity in in the last decade to travel to the United States. And her host took her to a church that just happened to have a baptism that day. And as she sat listening to the message, watching the souls being baptized, she began to fidget. She couldn't really sit still. And the host thought, what's wrong? And and whispered to her, "Is, is everything okay? And this is what she said. I cannot believe this. I cannot believe that I have lived long enough to see people being baptized in public. No one is shooting at them. No one is threatening them. No one will go to prison. No one will be tortured. No one will be killed. I never dreamed that God could do such things. I never believed that I would live to see a miracle like this. 
That was very moving to me as I read that because how many times did I sit through a baptismal service? And yes, it's moving, but it never moved me like that because I have grown up, in a sense, with a life of privilege, as many of you have, growing up in a, in a, in a day and age where we can't even identify with that kind of persecution. And yet here she was witnessing a tremendous and great miracle taking place, moved to that point to be able to express something like that. And so often we maybe even struggle to stay awake when we have such a momentous occasion occurring. And I wonder how much of it is that we've, in a sense, become callous and we don't really recognize how great that work of God really is. So I believe that's the the first reason why Jesus was able to make a statement like that, to say that um, that we will do greater works than these as we see God working the conversion of souls unto eternal salvation. But also Jesus said in another scripture that he needs to go to the Father in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And the second reason why there would be greater works is because Jesus was limited in time and space. He could only be at one place at one time because of the incarnate. He took on the, the, the physical flesh and as a result was confined or constrained to that. But with the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers, all of God's work is happening simultaneously all over the world. Now that's a multiplication factor. That's an exponential factor. And why I believe Jesus could say such a startling statement that those, after he ascends to his Father, that those who follow after him, those who believe, will do greater works, not only in um, because of the, the uh, coverage that's happening, but also because of the number of people that will be able to come to salvation. In Proverbs 22, verse 9, sorry, verse 29, Scripture says, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before ordinary men. What Solomon is talking about here is someone that has a skill set, someone who is competent, will be quickly noticed and will be able to serve in that craft before people of note, even to the point of serving, standing before kings. And I think this is probably one of the reasons why God has distributed his spiritual gifts to all believers in various forms because he has given us skill sets in order to um, 
subdue, as it says, when he gave the command to Adam and Eve to subdue his creation, to make use of the things that he's provided in order to uh, make a way of living. And he's given different people different skills. As I look across the audience, I see those who are involved in teaching, those who are involved in the trades, those who are involved in um, some sort of technical aspect in engineering, in um, those that are at home raising children, those who are, I've missed a whole bunch of skill set, skill sets, but if we were to add them up, we would have quite a list from those that are here this afternoon. And that's a blessing. That diversity, I think, is part of God's plan because whatever skill set that he has given to you, you will be able to meet people that others without your skill set will never meet. And that is an important part of the relationship process that as we connect with people in our, as we carry out our work, that God will provide divine opportunities for us to share the power of the gospel message. What would happen if we began to view those skill sets that we have, not just as a way to earn a living, not just as a way to pass the time, not just a way to demonstrate the creative ability that God has given to us, but if we viewed that as a way to meet people we would never otherwise meet. And in the process of meeting with them, in the process of interacting with them, that we ask God to provide opportunities that we would be able to share the hope that is within us. And I found that as I've changed that perspective, and this is something that unfortunately is not... uh, Uh, A one-time change, this is something that I constantly need to be reminded of because I happen to be very task-oriented and I have a job to do, I want to finish the job and, 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 and not necessarily thinking about the relationships and the people that I'm interacting with, that there may be a higher level, something of greater importance than just accomplishing that particular task or that particular project or job. And so I have to be continually reminded that there is a greater purpose here and ask God to open my eyes to the opportunities that will present themselves to the customers I speak with, to the coworkers I interact with, to the new people that I meet. And when I have that mindset, it is surprising for how many opportunities the Lord provides for that to occur. And it's not just a one-way thing. It's not just somehow that I have the wisdom to impart to others. It's also God using circumstances and people to also speak into my life in things and areas that I need to grow in, that I may be blind to. And it's through that interaction that we not only grow as, as, as an individual, but also as a way to minister the gospel to those that we are interacting with. One thing that seems to be a common theme that Jesus 
the gospel writers record is that Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion as he saw those that were struggling with their health. He was moved with compassion. We saw the great multitude, he says, as sheep without a shepherd. It says he was moved with compassion when he saw the, the multitude that were with him for several days and had nothing to eat and they were hungry and faint and not able to, uh, or at risk of not being able to uh, make it back to their place of abode. And so all of these things, it says Jesus was moved with compassion. It wasn't just a duty or obligation that he felt. It was more than just a head knowledge that he had about their need, their physical needs, or a head knowledge about their spiritual needs. He felt it in his heart. And it moved him to compassion. And that's what he calls us to be moved as well. Is that that power of the gospel message is not just head knowledge that we know we need to do that or we feel a certain sense of obligation, but also that it moves us with compassion as we come face to face with the needs of the world around us or face to face sometimes even with our own needs and recognize our limitations and our dependence that we need to call out to God to help meet those needs. So as we look at that early church in Acts chapter 11, as they began spreading abroad, it says, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't specifically say in this chapter, but other chapters it says, as, as it extends greetings to the church in the house of such and such. And it gives a name. Multiple times we read that through the epistles because, of course, as they go and they preach the gospel, there's no such concept as a a budget that they can raise funds and build a building or anything of that nature. But that didn't stop them. In fact, that may have even been an advantage because they were able to connect relationally and then introduce them to the Lord Jesus in that personal way in their very own homes. And then it says, the tidings came to the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas. And Barnabas, following the example of the Apostle Paul that we read this morning in Romans chapter 1, goes there for a year, at least a year. Why? To impart a spiritual gift unto those fledgling churches that have just started. I don't know what he had to give up in Jerusalem in order to do that. I don't know what his uh, occupation was and how easy we know the Apostle Paul was a tent maker and went from place to place to sustain his living. But as he's there, he's there to strengthen the church and then calls Saul or And brought him to Antioch. And as they were there, they assembled themselves together, taught much people. And the disciples were first called Christians there in Antioch. Starting from very humble beginnings, there were no PhDs in that crowd. There were no uh, seminary-educated folks, though certainly knowledge is important. And uh, uh, we, we understand the value and the benefit of that. But God is not limited by the constraints that we so often limit ourselves with. The need to know knowledge is, of course, important to a certain degree. 
But once knowledge crosses a certain threshold, the scripture in 1 Corinthians 8 says, knowledge puffeth up. In other words, it inflates. It inflates our ego, it inflates our head knowledge, and it's easy to become prideful that we know something more than someone else. It's not to say that knowledge is evil. It's to say that our sinful nature is too easily tempted by knowledge. If it is not tempered, if it's not balanced with love, because in that same verse in 1 Corinthians 8, it says that charity edifies. Love. Love is the true mark. Someone that, something that brings knowledge and feeling together. And in the proper balance provides the best way to minister grace and the grace and truth of the gospel message. It's not just spouting true facts of the scripture. It's not just understanding how all the things are linked together, but it's when we're moved with compassion, understanding the gospel message, the power that is there, as we are moved with compassion, as we meet the needs and love the people that are around us, and as we experience that love, that God's great work is then accomplished. And we see the impact that it had on the early church. We see the impact that it had throughout history in various ages and times and places. And I'm convinced that God wants to continue to use that pattern here in this time, in this day and age, through each one of us as ordinary believers. That we ask God that we be filled with his Holy Spirit and ask God for opportunities for ways that we can minister this. And we begin to see how not only is the gospel has the power to change me as an individual, but has the power to change Others and has the power to change the world through the church if we follow these examples that have been left for us.